This podcast is offered by Black Mountain Zen on the web at blackmountainzen.org. Our public offerings are made possible by the kind donations from people like you. So, so think of sitting or, or the, maybe the agenda or the purposeful, purposefulness of sitting more like um, trying to engender, trying to call forth a kind of quiet happiness, you know? Uh, you know, happiness is such a lovely thing, but in a way it's a very subtle thing, you know? You can't force it on yourself. Uh, there, there isn't a particular, for most of us, a particular strategy. But in another way, we can tune in, you know. We, we can invite whatever agitations, preoccupations, distress. We, we can invite it to just gently open up and fall away. So as you adjust your body into an upright balanced posture, it's in inviting something in your, in your physical being to open, to release its preoccupations. Uh, it, it's contractions. It's similarly with the breath, with the exhale, tuning in to the sensation of exhale, like how is releasing embodied? How, how do we tune in deeply? And deeper than just thoughts in our mind, but with our psychosomatic being. How do we tune in and let something go? And as we breathe in, um, how do we allow? How do we open? How do we receive? Just like the the parabita of of receiving and giving, we receive the inhale, and we give out, we give back the exhale. And with that basis, of receiving and giving, uh, we open up to what's happening internally, and we open up to what's happening externally. The sounds, the smells, the sights, And then as we sit, we try to keep this touchstone of, of a gentle awareness in being, breathing it in, breathing it out, and a gentle openness to receiving all that's happening. Can it have a, a purposeful ease to it? It's almost as if you're quietly saying to yourself, just let it happen. Just let it in. Just let it go. Not as a demand, 
a coercion, but a kind of invitation to remember what it is to support your own well-being. And very deliberately as we start to sit, engage in that way. Let it happen, let it go. And listening and attending to the body and the breath and the state of mind and any persistent thoughts. Letting them show you what you are in this moment, in this time. And when you notice that you're getting caught in thinking, notice how that feels, how it registers in the body, whether it has emotions with it. And letting it go with the exhale, or just inviting it to soften. and pausing and receiving the inhale. 
And in a moment, I'll ring the bell. And when I ring the bell, and you start to transition back into more usual way of being, just notice what's shifting. What is it to transition? What's different? Is it a different way of attending? Engaging? Is the body different? So um, I noticed about half the group had the time to join the small groups. And I hope those of you who did uh, find that fruitful. You know? Over the years, I've learned that um, when a group of people come together and speak in an authentic and heartfelt way, it's almost like something magical insignificant happens yeah. and I often think that it's it's the empathy and the connectedness that's the main teaching of it all and of course we can offer ourselves that kind of, that way of relating to ourselves empathetic and authentic uh, there, there can be an internal um, giving and receiving. Uh, it, it, in, in some ways, the, the, the paramitas, you know, are often described as the behaviors conducive to awakening. Uh, that these are the characteristics of of being that are both the expression of awakened, of being awake, and then also what supports it. And, and the first one, uh, giving. And as I've been saying, giving and receiving are, are not separate. They're, they're intertwined. Uh, and then giving and receiving as um, an intangible thing. Like when we watch ourselves and we watch the ways we separate you know, and how mostly that happens for us in a kind of intellectual way. We, we, we experience, we draw conclusion, judgments and conclusions and and often that gives rise to us and them. And, and then the giving and receiving is reminding us that it's life's a negotiation. Life, life is just an array of relatedness. And, and that the reactiveness, the, the contraction is, is part of how we're negotiating our own well-being, our own uh, homeostasis. And, and as we can attend to it, we can, we can see more and more that 
it has a lot of limitations to it, you know. It's in some ways empathetically, we, we can realize that separating from what we think will harm us, separating from what we profoundly disagree with, uh, seems both a, an appropriate and fruitful thing to do. Uh, but when it draws in, and maybe it is, maybe often it is, uh, but when it draws in a kind of harshness, a reactiveness, uh, uh, hostility, uh, uh, disapproval, maybe disapproval is fine, but something that has an aggression to it, uh, then something is lost. Something of relatedness is lost. Like if you think of what we seem to be going through globally, both from the pandemic and all of its uh, demands that we socially withdraw from physical contact, uh, and then more, and then the economic impact of that. You know, how that affects our society, how that affects the, the, the ways in which we engage in a fruitful way. And then more recently, uh, in particular in the United States, it's, it's, and then how that has spread through many places in the world, this kind of um, systemic, uh, racial and and other ways of discriminating you know i mean i know racials in the forefront now as you know and, and and to my own way of thinking and assessing in a very appropriate manner but there are many ways we judge you know who is us and who is them who deserves our affiliation and who deserves our rejection. Yeah. And, and Buddhism would teach us that when we, when we get caught in that, in an unexamined way, that it starts to define who we are and how we are. And it starts to define the world we're living in. And, and, and dana, this giving and receiving, is inviting us back into relatedness. And, 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 and softening and, and reshaping, re rearranging um, the, the, our patterns uh, of interaction. Because us and them creates um, defined ways of thinking and being. Us, us and them justifies injustice. You know, us, us and them justifies a lack of concern and. Um, and acceptance and tolerance and collaboration. Yeah. It, it makes a hostile response feel appropriate. It makes a reactivity seem like the appropriate emotional disposition. And then how do we invite in a dana, a giving and receiving that has a palpable quality of togetherness? And, and a lot of that is for us a, um, an intangible process. You know? 
are we having a generous consideration of others? Can we think of each human being as a person who's attempting to live life in a way that makes them happy? Even when we look at that very same life and think, well, I certainly cannot in any way approve of the majority of this person's behaviors. Okay. But can you um, accept their, their wish to be happy? Even if how they set about it isn't completely at odds with how you think it should be done. This kind of intangible generosity. And to be in learning mode, to be in receiving mode. But yes, I do have my point of view. Yes. I do have my ways of seeing things and assessing them and drawing conclusions, but being open to learning. And, and how learning is, I would say usually an, an extraordinary uh, process. You know? when, when I think in the United States, you know, where I've lived for 40 years, and, and, and think of what it is to deeply learn the impact of uh, racism, how it has become established in, in a structural way. And how just in the last uh, couple of weeks, many of us are learning um, of our own hubris, of our own passivity, uh, of our own um, culpability in a way. That our non-action uh, has has been a negative act. So this kind of intangible expression of giving and receiving or not, not giving others for some racial thought they have, not giving them uh, all the rights and benefits that they deserve. And then in a, uh, in a tangible, material way. Yeah. I think when we delve thoroughly into the intangible, then we can see, oh, well, the material is much more accessible. Yeah. But, uh, And, 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 the, and the material, you know, usually we think of the financial, you know, what something's worth in, in terms of uh, monetary value. But actually, most of the things we treasure, we don't treasure them because of their monetary value. We treasure them because of our relationship to what they are. You know, when, when people have to rush out of their burning house, uh, they grab what they cherish. And how can that be? An um, exchange, how can that reinforce our relatedness? Yeah. 
I, I lived in Japan, you know, for a year. And they have a wonderful cultural, um, what would you say, a cultural ethos, where whenever you visit someone, you bring them a gift. And, and of course, if you're visiting someone almost every day, the gifts are quite small. And usually it's just the, um, the feeling of generosity that uh, is, is most palpable, you know? Like when someone brings you two or three small mandarins in mandarin orange, or you know, just some thoughtful little thing they found uh, in the recent past. Uh, this way, um, I had intended to offer you an exercise, which uh, I can't quite remember how I came across it, but oh, I do remember. I read about it. I was inspired to do it by reading a book called Money and the Meaning of Life. which was to give, to give away some money to a stranger, someone you didn't know, and then to try to persuade them in giving it to them, to give it to somebody else. So not only do you have a, a gift that you're giving, would you also then have a negotiation, you know? Can, can you invite this person into the giving club, you know? Can you persuade them that giving is more fun than having that amount of money that you just gave them? So. So I, I, even though we're going to move on to the, the second paramita, uh, I would suggest you try that. Uh, I remember quite a while ago, I tried it with the policeman, you know. Uh, I'll, I'll give you the elaborate version, a, sh a shorthand of the elaborate version, which is um, take a dollar bill, or a pound note or whatever currency you, you use or you are and, and um, offer incense and pass it over the incense as a kind of purification. Uh, and then go out with the intention of giving it away. And then, as I said, with this uh, purification it, it sort of, it imbues it with an intentionality. It, it's, it's this extraordinary thing that we have in our life called money that uh, we give tremendous authority to and, and tremendous relevance to. And how amazing that you can just take one of its tokens and give it to another person. And how amazing if you can invite them to the paramita of giving and, and agree with you that it is more precious than the monetary value of the piece of paper you give them or the coin. So I tried to give it to a policeman and uh, I, I was explaining to him what it was about, to which he was very agreeable. But then he shared with me that it was against the law to give a policeman uh, money, that it was uh, essentially, was a bribe, that he uh, was forbidden to take. Uh, but the interesting thing was that we had an amiable exchange around it. 
and, and he, he was kind of amused by the whole process, uh, as was I. So how to draw ourselves back into an interrelated world. You know? As many of you know, you, you, taking the term shunyata and Thich Han translated it as emptiness, usually how we translate it. And Thich Han translated it as interbeing. How to let giving and receiving draws back into interbeing. How else would I have had uh, that conversation with that policeman? That we could have met as human beings. That he wasn't telling me I was breaking the law or in coercing me into complying with the law. He was just explaining, uh, this is one of the rules he lives by, that he accepts as part of his job. How do we do that? So in some ways, um, to remember this is foundational. This interbeing is a foundational aspect of our human life and from a Buddhist perspective. And I would say from a thoughtful and insightful perspective. Uh, how extraordinary that one person's life is extinguished by callous appropriate actions on another person's part. And it sets the stage and creates an activity across the planet. What an example of interbeing. And how do we do that? How do we contribute in a uh, in a positive manner to this interbeing. And the first paramita says giving. And then the second paramita says um, sila, you know, or shila in Sanskrit. And usually we trend, it's translated as discipline. You know? So I, I looked up the dictionary version of the word discipline and it said something like a um, trainings discipline is training someone to obey the rules of order and punishing them when they don't and, uh, and then I looked up uh, in in Wikipedia the the, the Buddhist version of Shila yeah. And it's something like um, the, the, the morality and the ethics of the awakened person. Yeah. And, and I would suggest to you that uh, from a Buddhist perspective, it's the discipline of generosity. It's the discipline of interbeing. It's the discipline of tolerance. It's the discipline of not settling for our own reactiveness and our own contraction from negotiating our shared life with all beings. It's a discipline of benevolence, of, of nurturing our own happiness and well-being and nurturing 
the happiness and well-being of everyone, all beings. And um, and then from a Zen perspective, the uh, the practice of zazen is. Uh, In, in, in a formal way, in, in, in sitting still and connecting deeply to the body and the breath and the mind and the emotions. That we're tuning in to what we might call the, the essence of being alive. Yeah. And that that's a sila, a shila, that's a discipline. No? And the interesting thing, it's through the intimate details of our own being, uh, you know, each of our bodies has its own peculiarities and peculiarities too, you know, where it holds tension, where it misaligns. Yeah. And as we tune into that, it's only like it, it it, it gives us, within that particularity, it gives us a connection to what it is to have a body, to what it is to have a mind, a nervous system, a respiratory system. To be a human being in search of safety, in search of happiness, in search of respect and love from others and to give it to others. How do we do that? And in Zazen, we're tuning into the essence of that. It's, it's very helpful each time you sit down to not just translate Zazen into some simple notion. I have to be very concentrated on my breath or I have to sit in a way that my body's completely at ease. Uh, those are helpful things. But the request of Zazen goes beyond them. And, and, and this essence, fundamental essence of Zazen in, in, in the language of Buddhism, it, it, we would say, this is the non-dual experience of being alive. Something essential to all being. Something in the essence of all being. And then out of that, endless ways of expressing life. Endless ways we contract and endless ways we can open and intervene. It, so, Sila is both what we might call the practice of supporting this engagement in the essence, and then it's the the morality, the conduct that engages the world. You know, how do we engage the world in a way that doesn't harm? How do we engage the world in a way that promotes our common welfare? How do we do that? Um, And in, in, in the history of Buddhism, uh, there have been different formulations as to how to do that. In, in, in early Buddhism, uh, the monks and the nuns had very prescribed lives. Uh, 256 rules for the monks and another 100 in addition to those 
for the nuns. They ranged from, you know, very fundamental things like don't kill, don't steal, don't lie, uh, to uh, subtle things, how you behaved when you were out in public. You know? don't, don't act in a grandiose, self-important way. Um, and then as Buddhism evolved, and then the rules evolved. And then in the Zen world, the, the, the rules um, took on a flavor of how to make conscious what we're doing. Yeah. What, what ways to behave that supports awareness? Sort of trusting that as we practice awareness, this benevolence for all being will have more opportunity to just rise into the foreground of our intentions. And then that too shifts and changes according to circumstances. I was in the city for a week and uh, after being at Tassahara for five months and then after a week I came back here. One of, one of the joys of monastic life is that uh, while it's quite prescribed, it, it also has a kind of a simplicity and a rhythm to it, you know? And, and we're all more or less uh, endeavoring within the CM realm of activity. And how different that is in the city. So th this way of expressing sila, um, finding within the, 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 what you might call the inner circle of our life, you know, the people we talk to every day, the, uh, the places we engage every day. And this, 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 I think, has been one of the intriguing social endeavors of shelter in place. Um, that it, our, our inner life, our inner circle of activity and being becomes more prescribed, like a monastic civic setting. And then we can um, attend to it and study it in more detail. So that kind of sila. So what I would suggest to you is um, noticing as, as you engage your, the inner circle of your life. And by that, I mean both the, the physicality of it, you know, uh, the routines you have, how it feels when you enter that inner circle. How it feels when you exit that inner circle. Yeah? And sometimes it's helpful to notice when you're doing either. Yeah? What's it, what's it, how do you feel when you, in the morning, when you're leaving where you live? Yeah? Do you feel the urgency of what you have to accomplish that day or what you tell yourself you have to accomplish? Or do you feel a kind of exuberance in taking on another day's adventure? And equally, how do you feel when you return home? How is that? 
Is it a relief? Or do you immediately start to think of the responsibilities that you have in home? So, so both of these and, and, and how they create their own agendas. And then the request of Sila to make it conscious, to make the agendas that you find yourself living on a daily basis in your inner world, to become conscious of them and, and how they uh, display themselves. And then similarly with your outer world. Yeah. How do you engage others? Yeah. Do you find yourself one way or another promoting your agenda almost in opposition to what what other agendas there may be. Often it's just interaction with other people. Uh, competition, comparison. It's intriguing to me that the movement in how management is conducted is, is moving towards more collaboration. Yeah. It's, it's the, the, the previous model of a good manager is the authority and he asserts his authority since it was mostly a masculine uh, notion <laughs> with uh, with skill and achieves the appropriate goal. And how more ma modern management is now thinking, it's a process, it's a collaboration, it's an inclusion, it's that you create a team and the team works as a unit. And out of that comes the best uh, outcome. I remember being struck when I heard Brother David Standlerust give a talk at Zen Center. And he said, God is becoming more feminine and more forgiving and more compassionate. Yeah. What is it to be intentionally collaborative and compassionate. What is to have a state of benevolence, intention of benevolence that's inclusive? That kind of uh, discipline. And how the challenge for us who've grown up in the West um, with, with the notion of discipline, that is, obey the rules or suffer the consequences of not obeying them. Yeah. How most of us who grew up in a theistic environment, um, the, there was a notion of God as the 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 ultimate authority on who is and who isn't obeying the rules and, and the ultimate authority in how you'll be punished. You know? And somewhere deep in our psyche, you know, there is this notion and, and, and how as people who are exploring the Buddhist way and the Zen way, you know, to watch for that, you know, and, and to not 
to not take it on as the the definition of discipline. You know, discipline is the activity of the disciple who's following the way, who's following the way of benevolence and kindness. So it's very helpful for our, our, our deeply ingrained Western psyches to remind, constantly remind ourselves, I'm doing this to promote happiness, my own and everyone else's. I'm doing this so that everybody can have a better life. That's the discipline of our practice. So, um, I'll, I'll write this up as best as I can remember it, and also, Jean will send out the uh, the recording of it, and you can listen to that if you wish. And then I'll, I'll suggest some ways of working with it. And then if you can um, take them up and watch, D don't turn them into uh, a discipline that's one of obedience and compliance. And then punish yourself when you don't meet the standards you're supposed to meet. As Brother David says, can your, voice, can your vo inner voice become more feminine, forgiving, and compassionate? Mm -hmm. This is, uh, as, as I was watching, uh, or I wasn't watching so much as I was reading um, through the the happenings in United States and in many places in Europe too, in response to this extraordinary newfound awakening towards the uh, extraordinary negative impact of institutional and structured racism. Um, how simple a notion the solution is you know it's just simply one of benevolence wishing well for everyone regardless of you know, how we might want to identify them or how even they might want to identify themselves There, there is a discipline there. And even when we find ourselves coming up short, as I think many of us are doing, in how we're proactively promoting, promoting that, um, forgiveness, and then action. How do we do that? How do we not simply dwell in our own uh, shortcomings where we've fallen short, but move forward into uh, more positive actions? So I'll give you some suggestions and And, and, and don't let them, as best you can, don't let them be a source, a new find source of self-criticism. No? But rather, let them be a way to um, explore deeply how you're cultivating and promoting well-being. 
okay so thank you and if uh, some of you haven't signed up for a group but you would still like to do uh, the small groups um, I, i'm sure you can just contact jean and she'll fit you in somewhere are there any other logistics, Jean, that we need to take care of? I don't think so. It, everything seems to be going smoothly. <laughs> so, uh -huh. thanks for checking. <laughs> Good. Well, hopefully I, I'll find getting online uh, a smoother proposition. Uh, okay. So thank you all for tuning in and I'll see you next Monday and I'll hopefully send that out either this afternoon or tomorrow morning. Okay, thank you and take care.